This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. I, I kind of uh, made a podcast a, a few months ago where I kind of came up with this term for that. I call it, rather than guerrilla gardening, I, I called it forage gardening. And, and it's like, so here's going to be a road or a path or something like that where probably no human being is going to come and spray ever. And uh, and it might even be on your own land. A lot of people have land that, uh, you know, they could do this as well. And, and or it could be uh, neighbor's land with permission or, you know, maybe it's forest service land or timber company land or something like that. But but to go out there and plant some seeds um, with the idea that you might circle back in a few months and only 10% of them have made it to full size uh, or whatever. And and then uh, uh, some of them will be trees and you might not have anything that you can harvest for seven or eight years. But then when you walk back there seven or eight years later, there's there's food. And, uh, and the wildlife might take some and you might take some. Yeah. I even... Talked with a bunch of my neighbors, um, and I ordered extra chestnut trees, and then gave them chestnut trees, <laughs> and they were thrilled to have them and plant them. So I was like, "Hey, extra pollination is good for everybody. So let's just get these growing here." And that's been really fun. In the world of community resilience, this phrase that you use, which I find so delicious, then. What I, what I, the subtext of that phrase is that it's something that you think about regularly and it's something that you work on and that you have polished over the last decade, uh, in an, in an effort to have the community joy that you feel now. And I imagine that through these efforts, the community joy that you feel now is significantly more than the community joy that you felt, even though you had community. 10 years ago. Is that accurate? So accurate. Yes. It's been quite amazing to, I guess, navigate the, the human community, which is, you know, worth tending like a garden in terms of, you know, not having a monoculture. And right now we've got kind of a, a variety of, of farm mates. Ten of us, when we're at full capacity, ranging in ages from seven to sixty-nine, and that's been really important to have the mix of ages, a mix of skills. Like we've got somebody who can totally put a new motor in just about anything that needs a new motor. You know, can fix things, can get the part, can get the wheelbarrows tuned up. Uh, we've got folks who are awesome at doing the food processing and are totally happy to pick berries all day. And all those pieces come together so that everything gets done. I do miss our farm grandma. Our farm grandma, Jen Wolf, uh, has been with us for the past three years. She was with her family in Hawaii over the winter and has very sensibly just stayed in Hawaii rather than come back to the Northwest. So somebody who's just washing the goat milking rags and taking care of the dishes and tending this and, you know, getting a new, making making up a new shower curtain and doing all those bits and pieces that otherwise get lost and they just do so much for the smooth running of the household. I've had three-year-olds come and they help fill the wood box and they're truly helpful. <laughs> like, there are so many ways for people to engage here, and that is a piece that feels resilient, where, okay, everybody can come and have something to offer. My mom kind of gets on my case, and she's like, oh, man, Alexia, visitors come, and you're just like, welcome to Hawthorne Farm. Here's your shovel. 
like, hey, there's stuff to do. Like, let's let's do it. And actually, um, I have people come and help me with the horses and even pay for a lesson on how to farm with horses, which is so fun. Like, it's just ridiculous amounts of fun when everything is just tuned and the horses are going smoothly and they love the work. And the humans love the work, and it feels so good to be doing something like that. Um, and people pay me to come do that. And it's just amazing to have so many ways for people to engage with what's going on here. Because it meets a very basic human satisfaction. Like, walk around and pick a plum off the tree and eat it. And feed, pick clover and feed it to the rabbits. Like, everybody just loves these things. Um and so it's really nice to be able to offer that. It's really nice to be able to get help from so many people in a way that's really fun. And like I said, I'm kind of about having fun. Like, this should be fun. Otherwise, young people are not going to want to do it. <laughs> All true. All true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so now the the magic is in the recipe and how to get there, which would probably be 200 podcasts um and so we, we probably can't jump into that but just just to kind of skim over it really quick i mean i think that there is probably a reason why this other person who want, wants to be all alone there's there's something that they experienced in their past that made them think i cannot do community and but but the more important thing is, is that the thing that they probably experienced, you have probably experienced that same thing, probably because you stuck with it over the years, you probably experienced it five times more than they did. But yeah. Well, my, my grandmother, who was born in Chile, used to say, my Sabe el diablo por viejo que por diablo. The devil knows more from being old than from being the devil. So, I'm like, I'm just getting older. Okay. Well. And I'm getting more honest with myself, and I'm getting more respectful of myself and others. And anybody who comes to live at the farm for any length of time, Daniel and I have worked on our preamble, <laughs> about, you know, it boils down to respect. Like, we respect you. You respect us. These are the hours that we need. Here's the kind of work we expect you to take, you know, care of how you are with yourself. We expect to have good communication. Like, it, that's what it boils down to. And we expect everybody who lives here to have some kind of daily centering practice for themselves, especially some any kind of nature connection practice. For us, it's our sit spot. Like we go outside and we just sit. And so anybody who comes here, we're like, hey, you can you can sit outside for 20 minutes and just watch what's happening. Like that totally qualifies. Because when all of us in the household are doing that, we come together as way better human beings and are able to work things out much better. So, and this is not new. Sometimes I've felt kind of frustrated that I didn't grow up with cultural tools for getting along better with people. Um, so the fact that we're in a subsistence situation together does really help. The work that we do together is mutually beneficial. And that's a help. That's a great, you know, that's a great motivator for everybody. Like if we tend the gardens now, you know, if we can these peaches now, we will all benefit in December. Like, it's worth it. <laughs> Let's work together on this. So I think those subsistence skills and the honesty and respect and communication are all foundational for that, that human element of permaculture here. So I think that that other person, they experienced a dark thing. And I think Everybody listening to this podcast, and uh, myself, and you, have all had something where you're trying to get things to work out, and somebody is behaving by your standards, by by, by my standards, by the standards of the listener. Uh, somebody somebody is uh, choosing a path 
that is contrary to our values, perhaps, or or contrary to the agreement, or whatever, and um, they, the other party insists that you must now obey what they say, and and if you don't, there is an or else. So obey or else, and and so I I feel like. I have encountered this probably more than the average person where I have an audience and so people tell me what I have to think or say and convey that to my audience and I say I don't I'm not comfortable with that and then they're then they get angry and basically their message becomes if you don't do that then I will fuck up your shit. And whatever that might mean. And they've got, each one's got their own thing. So obey or else. And it's awkward because you're like, I was hoping to make everything comfortable. And I've even had somebody say, you use the word respect. We ask that you respect us and we will respect you. So they might say, how are you respecting me if you won't do what I tell you to do? That's disrespectful. So what I'm trying to say, what I think is a long-winded way of saying is that there are awkward situations, painful situations, and really the recipe for community is to, you know, how do you design your systems in such a way to greatly reduce the number of those situations that ever happen and have a way of easily navigating those when they do crop up. So the first thing I kind of need to hear from you is that you, because you are such a sweet and lovely person, I think a lot of people, and myself, I've already made the mistake and you've corrected me, assume errantly that that would never happen to you because you are a sweet and lovely person. Oh, well... I'm not always sweet and lovely. Like, that would just be boring. And that's another thing we tell people here. Like, okay, like, we are all human. And we just have to accept that about ourselves. And we just have to know that we're going to get impatient with with each other. And that somebody is going to, you know, drop my favorite spoon into the gray water bucket. And it's going to be lost. And, like, these things are just going to happen. And I actually have removed a lot of my nice things from the kitchen. Or I have my knife, who is named Lucille, and she lives by my shelf. And nobody touches Lucille without asking me. Because that makes it, that just makes life easier. <laughs> this is my knife, and nobody is going to touch my knife. Um, and then there are other things that's like, oh, yeah, you know, free-for-all. Like, those cast iron pans over there, you treat them however you want, because I have my cast iron pan over here that I'm treating how I want. And so everybody gets along and can fry their eggs how they want. So figuring out those little technologies, and it's always advanced because we have changing people, changing needs in the house, uh, but extending some grace for ourselves is good. I have not had so much of the obey or else phenomenon, um, and I I don't know why. I'm certainly not as prominent a figure as you, Paul, so I... I can definitely imagine the thickness of skin it must uh, must take to share those opinions. I also know that I really don't know much. Like, in the grand scheme of things, anything I say is just one human's opinion based on my very limited experience. Like, I'm only seeing so much of the electromagnetic spectrum here, <laughs> folks. Like, I... I really do not know it all. And even my answers about this place and this land, it's totally one of those, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. So I try to uh, be clear about what is actually my sphere of influence and not extend too far beyond that, at least when it comes to kind of the homestead and the community here in our home. Um, so the horses have also taught me a lot about that, about being a leader where, you know, there is a way things are going to go within my sphere of influence. And I have that influence and I have that power and this is how 
things are going to go, and I'm going to be as kind and open to feedback about that as I can be, but ultimately, within my sphere of influence, this is how things are going to happen. And what you do in your yurt over there is your business, uh, provided it fits within the overarching boundaries of the farm, but like, there just is a certain standard of how we are here, and we're clear about that so that people's expectations, you know, can can meet us where where <laughs> where those boundaries are. And so, I mean, so far again, knock on wood, it's um it's been working out. I can't again, I can't make any grand pronouncements about how it will be in the future. Uh, I often describe myself and Daniel as the alpha pair of the wolf pack. Is a little bit of this feeling here, and um, it helps that we are fairly relaxed about what we're doing. Like a lot of the income that comes into the farm is from me and Daniel teaching and consulting. It's uh, from rental stuff on the property, so we're not having to depend on one person, like to do X amount of labor on any given day, typically. There, that's part of the community resilience piece I was talking about. It's like, okay, well, the gardens could get weeded today, or they could get weeded tomorrow, uh, or somebody can do them this day, and it's going to work out, and things are at a pretty stable flywheel kind of place. This year, <laughs> they weren't so much last year, and who knows what it will be like next year, but for now, I'm enjoying the sweet spot and really wishing people well in however they engage with this information in the places where they are. When I'm doing consulting, sometimes people say, just give me a plan. And <laughs> I'm like, I, I cannot do that. I mean, first of all, just full disclosure, I've never taken a, a permaculture design course. I've you know, certainly read plenty of permaculture stuff, but I would not call me call myself a permaculture, a a real permaculture farmer. Um, so people, some I've said there are lots of great designers who will tell you what to plant where, and that's not actually me. I view myself more as a relationship counselor. <laughs> <laughs> the, the counselor, you know, in terms of dealing with people's relationships with their landscapes, the marriage counselor is not the marriage. Like, I am there to listen, to try and ask the right questions and foster the relationship between people and their land. And I cannot go in and have that relationship for somebody else. Like, the land needs to actually get a hold of your cells. Like, you need to pee on your lawn (laughs) for that soil to know you. Um. Like, I can't come pee on your lawn. I got my own lawn to pee on. (laughs) So what is the relationship between individual people and the landscapes they live in? Like, that's the real juice to me um, rather than than more of a prescription. Although, I do that, too. You know, I'll say, like, oh, have you considered planting the hazelnuts over on that side? They're like, well, how about if you use the greenhouse area for this, that, or the other? You know, I think those plants would like the extra heat. Um. But I really love the relationship between people and the land they live on. Yeah, Mindy, sorry, that was, a, that was a good soapbox. Oh yeah, no, no, no. And I want to. I'm, I'm going to fish for a little bit more, and then we're going to move on to the topic of the day. And and so a little bit more means uh, a lot of communities use the consensus decision making model. What is your? What is the decision making model at Hawthorne Park? A great question. <laughs> well, let's see. It, it depends on the decision. <laughs> and I think that oh, um, the way I try to phrase it to people who come here is, hey, I want your brain to be working while while your body is working. If you see a better way to do something, tell me about it. And we'll see if it works, or we'll see if I already tried that five years ago, and I can tell you six reasons that it doesn't work. (laughs) But, you know, if you say, hey, if we just run a hose out to this place, we won't have to carry this water there. Fantastic. Like, 
yeah, run those ideas by me. Usually it really boils down to me or Daniel saying, you know, yes, go ahead and use those materials. Yes, go ahead and plant those raspberries there. We really like those decisions to come through us and our relationship to the land. Daniel and I have the longest standing relationship with this soil. So people will come to, come to us, tell us what they plan to do. We'll often sit on it for a day and then say, you know, give the thumbs up or the thumbs, thumbs down or the thumbs sideways. And we also try to keep our landscape within a scale that that actually works. We're managing just about eight acres. Um, over half of that is forest land. And so that is a scale where most of those decisions can actually come to our ears. And that helps. I wouldn't necessarily want to go much bigger. And in fact, as I mentioned to you when we were talking yesterday, I just gave up the lease on three acres of farmland, which was just oh, 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 right oh, up. there yet. Oh, I thought okay, that okay, that's okay. the next thing on my list. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So decision making model. I wanna I wanna tell you what we do, mm-hmm. and I think what we do might be the exact same thing that you do. But I've come up with a whole document to describe it and everything, and I call it the independent thought consensus dictator hybrid. <laughs> and and so basically, it's like you know ninety percent of the time. Uh, whatever it is that you're working on and you want to do a different way, nobody gives a shit. And so in which case, go ahead. You know, and lots of times if it turns out somebody does care, uh, you can hit the undo button in a way. You know, it's like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put it back then. You know, and that, that, that'll be good. And then sometimes you're thinking like, oh, there's any people who care. So you check in with those people and then see if you can reach consensus. And, uh, if you don't, reach it quickly, you know, then you can always turn it over to the dictator, and then the uh, then the dictator makes the final call. So that way, a lot of time isn't uh, put into it. Now, of course, the downside. Everybody thinks like, "Whoa, wouldn't it be awesome to be the dictator?" And it's kind of like, well, actually, it kind of sucks because you know, for if if there's all these decisions that you're making, and there's two people who have different views, you just told no to half the people. And after a while, after they've heard no a few times, they're kind of getting a little pissed off. And they're like, over there in the corner, kind of sharpening these knives while muttering about that damn dictator. And it's kind of like, uh, it's like not a, not a great position. So it's, it's not as great as you might think. But the thing is, is that most of the decisions the dictator never even hears about. And in the end, the dictator's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's that's what we do here. That's what we've done at the permies.com staff and and then my my uh, community before that, which would be the Java Ranch staff, mm-hmm. is we did this independent thought consensus dictator hybrid. And and I think it I think it's worked out really quite well. Yeah. Would you say that this is what you do? That sounds about right, you know, and and being the one having to make those calls is tough. I hear you. Yeah. And so. the dictator stuff, you're only having to exercise it like 1% or 2% of the time. Uh, yeah. 90% of the time, it's independent thought. Uh, nine, eight or 9% of the time, it's consensus. Hey, I was thinking of doing this. Uh, I was thinking you might be weird about that. But what do you think? Uh, that sounds fine. Okay, that was cool. Ooh. That I see a chicken where she shouldn't be. Can I just run out and come right back? Yes. All right. Be back with Flash. <laughs> All right. Maybe I should talk for a moment about uh, what we're going to, to you know, I, I want to come up with something to, like, uh, try and, and, and have a funny thing to talk about. So when she comes back, I, I've got something to say. But I got I got nothing in that space. In the meantime... Uh, I do think it's fair to say that, um, uh, oh, I know, I always kind of think like I should mention my Patreon thing in the middle, and I want to thank my Patreon backers for uh, supporting me so much. It really kind of helps get these things going, and and there have been 
there have been a couple of times when it was like enough money that it's like, wow, we need some money. Let's make lots of podcasts. And um, that was a big motivator. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of feel like sometimes I put out a podcast and I don't hear much back. Um, and then every once in a while, and I do seem to run into like hundreds of people that have, that remind me of something I've said in the podcast. So I know lots of people are listening to the podcast, but I don't know. I'm listening. I'm here. Oh, there you are. You're back. You're back. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> While you were away, I was just telling my pods people that it would be nice to, to hear from them once in a while on the, because each podcast has a thread at Hermes, and I'm subscribed to all those threads, and if people have questions, they can post them there, and I'll see them. And, um, but, okay, uh, so so I think now I am ready to move on to your thing, and, and it seemed like you mentioned a few different points to talk about that you would like to talk about, and the first one that I thought was absolutely delicious was that you had this three acres that was a ways away. So you kind of felt like, I love growing things, and I want to grow more, so much more than what I'm growing here. I'm going to rent that, that three acres. And I imagine that it wasn't like you went shopping for acres. You probably had a friend who had these three acres and would like to see him doing something more. That's a guess. You got it. Back when I had a cow... I was suddenly in the market for round bales of hay. So I found somebody who was selling bales of hay about 10 miles away from me. And he was saying, oh, I've got 70 acres, and I just bought it recently. I really want to see it get used. I want to see a bunch of lively young farmers here. And I'm totally a sucker for flattery, especially from these kind of, you know, older father figure type of guys. So I'm like, yes, great. Yes, I will be one of those lively young farmers. So I rented an acre, and I grew about 4,000 pounds of, I well, we brought home about 4,000 pounds of buttercup squash. And um, a neighboring farmer grows food for the food bank, and they gleaned another couple of thousand pounds of buttercup squash off of that acre. And it was so fun. I said, awesome. Well, I'm getting horses. So I would like to rent three acres because horses do well in long straight lines. So if I just rent this 600 foot by 200 foot rectangle, I'll have a place to grow with the horses. So that's what I did. I signed up people for a Staples CSA where I'd give them 800 pounds of squash and a whole bunch of beets and carrots and onions and things in the fall. And that plan promptly fell apart. My main workhorse had this serious metabolic condition where she could hardly walk all summer long. My main farm intern, her visa was out. and Well, not farm intern. She was actually visiting here from Italy. And so she had to go back to Italy. So one thing after another just fell apart. I could not actually farm successfully. and. Uh, so I tried again this year, and then I just thought, boy, to, to drive my two horses 10 miles out and 10 miles back to, in order to farm with horses actually makes zero sense. I'm just going to stick with, you know, the already abundant gardens I have now. And the fellow I was renting from had offered to do a bunch of disking and do a bare fallow time period with his tractor, and I said, sure, you know, do what you need to do, it is your land. I traded him some goats <laughs> for some of the year's rent, and he was giving me a total sweetheart deal, like there's so many things that were, that were working out about this arrangement, and I was going to grow popcorn there next year after a year of mitigating weeds with cover crops and bare fallow. And that land, when you talk about low organic matter, Paul, that land was like a basketball court oh my gosh and you know the soil pest results would just come back like wow it's it's going to be hard to grow stuff here already I could see that what I was doing even my really simple my low cost things like let's just spread a little bit of lime here and let's just spread some trace minerals some azomite here not even the full amount that the land might need but at least just what what I can afford 
And that land responded so amazingly. Like you could very clearly see the line of where I had just put down some calcium and just put down some trace minerals. Like the growth was so much bigger right there. Now, did you did you do a soil test first, or you just because the area? I know that that area. It's like pretty much everybody in the area puts down a lot of the same stuff. But so, did you do a soil test first? Yes. Yep. I do my soil test through Logan Labs and love it. You know, I mean, I had my suspicions about what was going on, but then I do the soil test so that I can get it. Like, okay, this is how many pounds of borax I need. You know, this is how many pounds of calcium carbonate I need. So I did that. I put down what I could of those. Like, you know, I could not put down all the recommended phosphorus, but I grew a buckwheat cover crop. Um. So, I just messed around with that. Also, the local elk thoroughly approved. They would come from all around. They would ignore other parts of the field, and they would come eat (laughs) all the nice, nutrient-dense cover crops and things that I was planting in there. It was also in a floodplain, like really in a floodplain. Like, you might have to canoe across the field in the wintertime. So, I didn't want to do a lot of overwintering crops, but I did a lot of crimson clover and rye and these other overwintering things to keep the soil in place. And I just realized it just wasn't quite worth my time and energy to get out there, especially when the landlord with his tractor is like, well, I'll just plow it for you. And I'm like, no, there's already a plow pan like you wouldn't believe in that place. I did really want to experiment with, you know, what does... What does my delicious variety of gardening look like on a larger scale? Like when people say, you know, what do you farm? Or how much land do you farm? Or how are we going to feed the world, quote unquote, you know? I wanted to experiment with what it's like on a larger acreage. And it was just daunting when it was that far away because I just couldn't have the relationship with the land that I wanted. And I do, I know you mentioned tilling earlier and turning over the soil. I minimize how I'm turning over the soil. Um, I do not use a moldboard plow. A, my horses really don't like it and they're too small for it. And most importantly, like it's just not good for the soil here with what I do. So I use cultivators. I use a very shallow surface scratching. I mean like two or three inches um, deep, and especially in places where I'm doing things like reclaiming the neighbor's barren lawn. And, like, I need to do something to get that soil out of lawn. And I know there are lots of things I can do in terms of, you know, mulching and et cetera, et cetera. But I have scraped up the turf with the pony-powered cultivator and grown a buckwheat crop and amended with minerals, and that's looking good. So that's why another reason I backed away from from leasing that land is it's too far away, and it's too much land for me to tend and still sleep at night. It's not in your – so in permaculture, we have zone one – Zone two, zone three. I, I'm not sure you're probably familiar with this. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's not. I mean, the thing that you love the most on at your place when I've been there is your zone one. That's mm-hmm. probably where you have your little. I'm going to go commune with my garden moment. Yep. It's probably in your zone one. Yep. And then there's a zone two, and a zone three, and a zone four. Um, and then this is not a zone 5, because zone 5 means wilderness, which you do not touch, although there are some different philosophies in that space. The important thing is is that it is a very remote zone 4, mm-hmm. and you're not going to see it very often. And I, I'm going to speculate that when you had thousands of pounds of squash, of winter squash that you grew there, that moment was a soul-building moment. Like, you were like, damn, I am amazing. This is great. This is so cool. And then the novelty of that quickly wore off. Yep. Am I, am I, yeah, okay. So, 
I'm, I'm kind of thinking, and, it's, and not only the whole thing about, I mean, even if you're going to go out there to do something without the horses, there's a certain petroleum footprint to that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, not, it's not exactly yours. It's not like you live there. It's not, it's not your zone one. And, and so it, it needs you, but it's, it's a kind of like, uh, your relationship is not what you would like. It's not the relationship that you get from your zone one. What might be a greater value is to expand your zone one and improve your own zones two, three, and four that are there Mm -hmm. rather than going all the way 10 10 miles away. Yes, precisely. Now, um, the moment has arrived. You said that there are things that I can tell you, and I'm thinking, nah, but you, you feel confident that there is. I know one thing you said was something about, like, you're going to consult, and you wanted to ask me a question about going and consulting, which I feel like I'm terrible at answering this question because I rarely do it. In fact, I advise my pod people, you probably do not want me to come and consult. Um, because I'll just crush your dreams. Um, but I've had a few people that have listened to all of my podcasts and asked me to come and consult them. So I've, I've done it. Um, and they seemed to be relatively happy. So, um, uh, but I think that for people that have not listened to all my podcasts, I, I cannot help but think that I'm just going to frustrate them. I like the style of consulting that Sepp Holzer does, where the uh, the person that lives there, he kind of puts up his hand between them and waves it. It's kind of like talk to the hand, but a little bit more animated. Um, and, and it's like he, he doesn't care what you have to say, uh, which I don't think is entirely true, but this I've seen him do it so many times that I think there is some truth to it. But I, I think that basically what he does is, is it's kind of like, yeah, you can tell, I think you, I think you will listen to the landowner a little bit. Like, what is it you have in mind? And then I'm going to tell you why that's stupid. Um, and I kind of, what he does is, is he's like, okay, if I owned this land, I will tell you what I would do. And, and because so often what people want is it's like they want, somebody to come in and be a landscaper and then stick a sign in it to say it was designed by Alexia Allen or stick a sign in it that says permaculture or stick a sign in it that says, you know, Paul Wheaton designed this or something. And I kind of like what you said earlier about, like, I'm not going to design anything, but I will walk around and blather. I will talk (laughs) about the things that are on my mind as I see these things and stuff. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make a design for you. You have to make a design for you, like that. So, yeah. you have a question in this space, or did I pretty much kind of answer it? That that sounds like a great answer. I didn't have anything else specific, except that it's been this sort of consulting been some something I've been dabbling in for a few years, and more and more recently, as people are like, help. I want to grow a bunch of my own food and feel good about it. And I say, okay, great, yes, I have done that, and I've done that from a background where I didn't know how to do it. And now I'm never claiming that I'm done learning, but we do, in fact, eat a lot of what we grow. Probably a good solid 80% of our calories are from what we grow. Um. And that is so much fun for me, and it's helpful to other people. You know, whatever I charge for my time in consulting, I always feel really good about, wow, if people actually follow my advice, I just saved them tons of time and money, like many times my consulting fee for it. Uh, and. I think my my specialty is in that 
how to get more calories out of a landscape than you put into it. Like, how do I actually grow food that will sustain me throughout my seasons? And, of course, my specialty is in this temperate zone here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and hmm, what else do I want to say about that? <laughs> uh, I feel like I, whenever I go into a spot, I mean, and then there have been quite a few spots in your neighborhood where I've been asked to come and consult and give advice. And if they're in a floodplain, my advice is always sell. Mm. Go somewhere else. Because if you're going to build magnificent soil or a permaculture paradise, it's kind of hard to do that when all of your magnificent soil gets moved off your property and substituted with Kim Ag soil. Mm-hmm. Now it's kind of like, well, congratulations. You can kind of grow grass, you know. A lot of your stuff won't grow because of the persistent herbicides that just moved in. So, congratulations. Uh, and and then the next thing I do is it's like uh, I'm very big on ferns and hugelkultur. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, which would be contrary to the horses. Um, oh, well. I don't know. I mean, my horses, I'm the first to admit that they are primarily for my own entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do great work, and they do help me in a lot of ways, but they are not more, they're not um, more efficient than just a bunch of humans. <laughs> in fact, we had two enthusiastic visitors in their 20s who actually just pitched themselves up to the pony-powered <laughs> cultivator and relax. Not only did they do a perfectly great job pulling the cultivator, but they were actually wielding hoes as they went. And they were hoeing with their arms while they were also pulling the cultivator. So um, I was pretty impressed. I was like, wow, you just put the ponies out of a job. Um, so the, the horses are for my own fun. And we do have Hugo culture here. Like I plant all my raspberries in Hugo culture. Like we have berms of varying sizes. Some of them are more like speed bump culture than Hugo culture. <laughs> but well, we do use a variety of terrain. And a lot of the gardens that I designed and, you know, set up and fenced space wise for human power are too small for the horsepower. So I don't really expect the horses to do much. Like I said, horses do better in long, straight lines. They, they really just do. Um, and we have a lot of curves already on the farm. So I'm not expecting the horses to do a ton of work. I'm expecting them to have fun and work safely in the spaces that we've got. And probably, you know, like I said, I'm able to teach people what I know about horses and the joy of working with them and communicating with them in that way. It's just a lot of fun for me to do that uh, versus using anything else. And I love how gentle they are on the land. Like the quality of the soil under a horse's hooves, um, when I'm using them judiciously in a landscape, really thrives, and I love that feeling like I love seeing that relationship and I use them you know they're an incredible uh public relations vehicle like I can drive a pony cart around the neighborhood and sell cucumbers off of my pony cart you know like that is just wicked fun and resilient and like okay you know people we've we've got your back with the fresh produce even if it's not in the grocery store, like, we're growing it right here. And so, like I said, I'm not making any claims that the horses are the one and only way to go, especially in a landscape like this. But we do keep them working, like, dragging firewood. You know, they restock the woodsheds when we we pull home uh, down branches from all around the neighborhood with the horses. So we keep them working, and it's a great exercise for me as well. Um, so, yeah. That's just my, my two cents on the horses. Okay. Should, uh, uh, what, what, are, what would be your, uh, question for me if, if, if you've got anything at all? <laughs> Lay it on me. Um, Paul, what would be, 
what do you view as your role in talking to people about their land? Like you mentioned, step holsters kind of waving the hand in front of the right. face kind of thing, or um, his, you know, perfectly reasonable approach of, okay, if I were on this land, here's what I'd do. Go do that. Um, I, I kind of feel like I really struggle when I get to properties and um, I mean, like on our own property, there's there's like a hundred things I I want us to do better. And at the same time, I kind of feel like a lot of what you're saying about community resilience and mm-hmm. having that community, I I just I like where we're at now is so excellent and. Um, so much is happening, and each so like we have enough acres that when anybody's been here for a month as a boot in the boot camp, then uh, they get their own acre to play with as long as they're in the boot camp, and then later they can transform that into being in ant village or uh, deep roots or something like that. But <clears throat> What they do on their acre is fun. And they, you know, they planted a bunch of trees, they built a little something, they planted a bunch of other seeds, they're doing, they're expressing their own vision in seed and soil there. Um, and I, I am, I am not, I am not there to say anything. In fact, I am, I am rarely there to dictate stuff for hardly anything because like right now, Fred is still in charge of the boot camp, and there are certain projects where Josiah has taken on a leadership role, and so things are are moving forward, and they're moving forward in an awesome direction, oftentimes more amazing than I would have imagined. Once in a while, I'll bring something up to one of them, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we did that two weeks ago. And it's like, oh, I just thought of it today. <laughs> so... It's it's like uh, uh, like mind reading is happening almost kind of. Uh, I guess when I go to a property, I I mean I first of all I I feel like uh, it's hard for me to say to somebody I think you ought to do these things when I'm kind of thinking like we haven't fully accomplished these things. and and we're still moving forward on it, but. A lot of times people are talking about farming, and I try to dissuade them from farming and go into more gardening. Mm-hmm. And then when they're like, well, I want to I want to use this land to make an income, and then that's when I suggest things like um, uh, having people come and visit, you know, um, maybe, maybe a, a teaching a workshop and then renting out bits and bobs around or something like that. And then, of course, providing the the food that that would go with it, uh, maybe having it being a, a, a bit of a health experience, something something like that, rather than like I'm going to grow thousands of pounds of squash and then sell it to people. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of feel like the amount of money you make from farming, um, or even doing the market garden or a CSA or a Saturday market kind of a thing that the amount of money that you make ends up being very small. And and when you're trying to do those transactions, it, it, it is a bit soul-draining to do those transactions. It can be soul-building, but it, it can also be soul-draining. Um, and, and so I would much rather have a deeper relationship with a, with a more, with a greater interaction. And, um, I don't know, something down that road of it's not so much about the selling the food as much as it is about being here. I I like the idea of infecting brains with my stuff. All right. I'm, I'm wandering off on 40 tangents at once. Hmm. When consulting on the few times that I've done it, I, I, I kind of feel like I want to tell people how I would do the things that I observe a little differently. And a lot of times I get there and they're still spraying. And so I feel like part of it is, is let's talk about why you might want to stop spraying. Um, or or maybe they are buying food and it's not organic. Well, let's, let's talk about that. 
Um, you mentioned earlier about peeing on your own lawn, and and of course um, the, the 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 question on because we for, we we now provide those little trough things. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Ooh. For women, mm-hmm. um, there's a novelty thing out there that's like a funnel, which is stupid. All the women here said those are terrible. Don't mm-hmm. ever get those. But the trough thing they like, and it's kind of like I don't know. And I'm I I really shouldn't talk about it at all. But I'm trying to think like, all right. So Alexia, you brought it up. Are you a squatter or do you use the trough? <laughs> no, good old five gallon buckets. Okay. Uh, around here. Yeah. So you're keeping it inside. You're keeping maximum privacy and carrying it outside. Yeah, actually, Daniel and I will sometimes fight over who gets the bucket for their <laughs> garden. Yeah, so there are times we've just had to have two so that we can each baby our own particular plant. Um, yeah, and I guess I said peeing on the lawn kind of figuratively, basically one of the things that I tell people often is if you want to grow food, you must close that nutrient loop. Stop flushing away those $4 of fertilizer that you produce every day. It is amazing how a little bit of urine will do so much so that, and and so quickly, uh, it's like, oh, there's a plant that's looking like a light green plant, and then, uh, okay, I'm gonna, that's where I'm going to pee today, and I give it one shot, and then two days later, it's a dark green. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, wow, that was quick. Meant to be. And it's like I'm kind of running out of spots. Everything nearby is dark green. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I have to travel further. So I can totally tell. Our We have a big raspberry hedge near our parking lot. And I can totally tell, you know, come springtime, I can see where everybody has been going out to their car. You know, they got it at 10, and they go get back into their car and drive away. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see where all the guys have been peeing all winter long. So, yeah, it's truly amazing. And, of course, I'm cautious with where we put it in terms of, you know, knowing that we sell vegetables and I'm not going to put it on those particular gardens and plants. Um, I have other amazing fertilizer stuff for that, but um, yeah. Anyhow, sorry that was that was also a good tangent, but one that I often bring up. So. This podcast is continued in part three. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com/slash/paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts. <laughs>